Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could come into your house today. Lord, we uh, come not just needing to hear a good sermon, not something, Lord, that just would strike our interests, but we need the work of your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, O oh God. We live in a world that is, is fallen and a world, Lord, that is ever drawing us closer to itself. And Lord, the battles and the struggles that we have, not only with the world, but even with Satan, and even though our own desires of our hearts are oftentimes greatly overwhelming, but we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we come to you this day and to look to you, O oh Lord, to speak to our hearts, to give us ears to hear your word, O oh Lord. We thank you and pray that these things would happen to bear fruit and, and glory and praise to your name, to strengthen your church and even to strengthen the bonds that we have with one another. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, isn't it interesting when we get to this time of the year that um, we almost could skip over Thanksgiving and just go right to Christmas? I mean, it just seems to be sort of a, 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 a yearning and a pull. I mean, even as we get to this time and Thanksgiving is just a, a couple of weeks away, I think sometimes our temptation is not so much to think about Thanksgiving as it is to think about Black Friday and to think about the deals that are going to happen and the, the gifts that we need to buy for Christmas and, and all those things. And unfortunately, I don't think that's just a struggle in the world. Even in the church, I think we wrestle with that and we don't quite state it that way. But, you know, pastors have their sermon series that they preach in the fall. And for us, that was to preach through the five solas of the Reformation. And then it just seems like you preach a, a quick one week Thanksgiving sermon to cover Thanksgiving. And then off we are to Advent and moving on to the Advent of Christ, and which is a great topic to talk about the coming of Christ. And, and we plan to do that, you know, as we get to the end of November and we'll be looking at, at Advent. But I think that's oftentimes unfortunate that, that we do that. And so what, what I want to do is to maybe just take at least a couple of weeks, maybe slow down a little bit, maybe not a lot, but a little bit, and look at the whole idea of Thanksgiving and, uh, and, and think about that. And as I've been thinking about, you know, having a thankful heart before the Lord, one of the things that has dawned on me that one of the thieves that I think uh, rob us of thankfulness is discontentment. You know, discontentment is coveting what we don't have or longing for it, believing that if we had it, that we would then be satisfied. And if our focus is upon that which we don't have, I think it's very difficult for us to focus upon what we do have and what God has given us. So today, what I want us to do is to turn to the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, as we look at this whole topic of contentment. So here now, the words that Paul writes to the church at, at Philippi, a church that he loved very much. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length 
You have received your you have revived, not received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So as we as we look at this passage today, and particularly as we look at verse 11, at least that's where we're going to start. We see, first of all, the need for contentment. You know, Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, he is sort of commending to the Philippians his state of contentment. He's not commanding them to be content per se, as much as he's sort of laying out before them his example of contentment. And he's saying to them that God wants them to live in such a state of contentment. And he, and he says this not only to this church that he loves very much, but also to the church at Corinth. He also writes to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. So turn, if you would, with me. We're going to be looking at a lot of the different passages, so keep your Bibles open and before you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to the Corinthian church as well. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, he says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Now, listen to the circumstances that he uses to describe in which he finds this contentment. He said, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Now, these wouldn't typically be a list that we would use that, that really fosters contentment in our hearts. You know, we might think, wow, what kind of guy is he? That he can be content in this. But then he goes on and he says at the end of that verse that he is content with these things. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He didn't look for that sense of contentment in and of himself. He actually says, actually, when I am weak, that's actually when I'm stronger. And then looking back to 1 Timothy, and I know we, we just read that, but let me just read it again. Timoth Paul says to Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And then one other verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5. Paul writes to the author of Hebrews. And he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And so what I want us to see just in this brief sort of survey, and there's other texts we could look at as well, that contentment was a big deal to Paul because God has created us to be content. And, and I would even argue that contentment comes from the character of God. There's a book that's written called The Art of Contentment. And in that, the author talks about how God is especially happy. And don't get hung up on that word happy, by the way. We think of happy as being very circumstantial driven. But, you know, God is essentially happy in and of himself. 
Uh, God cannot become more happy because of anything that that we do. You know, so we talk about the need to praise God or to worship him. And but in all of that, we don't add anything to God. God didn't somehow, you know, create us so that he could increase his happiness in some way. But instead, God created us and he made mankind that we, he might communicate his happiness to them. And so that's why God created man and put him in the garden, made him male and female, and he gave them his life to live, gave them a, a wonderful environment which to live, and he walked in fellowship with them. He allowed them to join, enjoy his creation, but of course sin entered the world. But even in that, that did not stop God's purposes you know, and was part of his plan. And God sent a redeemer who saved us uh, that we might then walk with him, but not only to walk with him, but God um, secured our happiness and uh, in Christ. And then he gave us his commands. He gave us Christian duties to do. And I think sometimes we can think of duties as sort of a negative thing. But in this case, that God has given us these things so that we might be able to live his life uh, in a way that would not only honor him, but it is a way that brings pleasure to him. So when God says, kids, love your brothers or sisters, you might look at that and go, oh, that's so hard. I know what my parents are going to tell me. That means I have to share my toys and stuff with them, or I got to speak nice to my sister, or I got to do all this kind of stuff. And we can sometimes think, oh, these are so terrible. But actually, do you know why God commanded these things? Because he knows that this is the good life. This is the happy life. That actually, when we love each other, that's when there's true happiness that's there. So the things that God has commanded us, the things that he has given to us, he has done so so that we might have a happy life. We might have a life of contentment. We might have a life of joy. And so as we think about Paul's uh, sort of his focus upon contentment, he does so because our God is a God that's content in and of himself. And so he has made us also to share in that as well. Now, let's look at the nature of, con of contentment, not only the need that we have as a church for contentment, but also the nature of that contentment. And I want to define what I mean by contentment, uh, because that can be sort of elusive. Uh, the word content in uh, Philippians 4:11 actually means, and here again, don't get hung up on this word, it means self-sufficient. Now, when we think of that term self-sufficient, we think about being autonomous, we think about being independent, we think about being self-reliant. But that's not the sense in which this word is used. Uh, it's, it's used in the sense of being independent of circumstances or conditions or surroundings. OK, so Paul is saying that he has arrived at a state in which he can say quite truthfully that he is independent of circumstances, his surroundings and everything that is happening to him. So it doesn't matter what people think of the Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter what they say about him. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in his life. In the midst of all these things, he is content because he is independent or he is self-sufficient from those things. Those things don't lead and, and direct him. And we see that exemplified 
in his life. This isn't just words for him. This is his life. You think about the context in which he writes this letter to the Philippians. This is a church that supported him. If you read on in Philippians 4, you see that this church supported him when nobody else would support him. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is if you look at sort of the background of the Philippian church, it was not a wealthy church. It was actually a church of very modest means. And yet it was a church that that he loved very much because they showed their love for him. It's a little bit like if you've ever gone on a missions trip and you've ever had to raise support and you get a check maybe from a widow in the church and you're thinking, wow, this person doesn't have a lot of money. This person is living on a very limited income and yet they gave me this money. I actually make probably more money than this person does. And yet they're willing to sacrifice that I might be able to go on the mission trip. It was sort of like that kind of relationship with the Apostle Paul and this Philippian uh, church. And so, you know, he loved this church very much. But so he writes to them. But in writing to them, his circumstances were such that he was in prison in Rome. Probably it chained, as we see in the book, between two guards. And so when he was in prison, you know, that's not a prison with like a swimming pool and a tennis court. And, you know, maybe like some of the American, you know, weightlifting gym and all that kind of stuff like we see in American prisons. This is probably more like, you know, the movies that we watch in the middle evil days where they took the person and they threw them in the dungeon of the castle. You know, where it's wet and dripping on the walls and stone walls and, you know, it's smelled and there's straw on the floor, maybe if they're lucky and they're chained to the wall, and that's that's how Paul was. But as well, in Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul and Barnabas were arrested, and they were thrown in jail. And it says that their hands and their feet were fastened in the socks and the stocks. And so, as you look at that, that wasn't very pleasant circumstances. And yet, we read in Acts 16:25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise. As a matter of fact. That, you know, it was such a, a sight for them that it's interesting that the scriptures record, it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you not picture that in your mind? Here are these men that are in prison, wrongly accused, and they're singing praises to God because the circumstances didn't touch their souls. And so... You know, as we as we think about a definition for contentment, I, I really actually want to borrow from a book that I highly recommend to you. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may have have read it. I'll tell you what, this actually is, you can download this as an ebook if you want for free. As a matter of fact, if you want to go to ebooks.kotp.org, that takes you to a link on our website. And it actually gives you a list of about 400 books, free ebooks, and this is one of them that you can download. And I encourage this to you. If you, We're just scratching the surface talking about contentment this morning, looking at this passage. But this is not a book to sit down and read in a couple hours. This is a book to sit down and maybe chew on for a couple of months. It's sort of like eating steak. But I, I, I recommend that to you. But in that book, Jeremiah Burroughs defines uh, contentment. And this is what he said. He goes, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. And now what he means by that gracious frame of spirit, he's saying that contentment is not so much 
from outward circumstances as it comes from the disposition of our heart or our soul or our spirit. So Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. That's God's uh, fatherly authority or his sovereignty. So it's which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly sovereignty in every condition. Now, let me explain, if I can, sort of that definition. Let's just say someone is disturbed. Maybe it's you. Uh, You're disturbed about something. And if you could bring some great thing to that person uh, and give it to them that would please them, you know, it might make them content. For example, let's just say your wife is disturbed. And so, you know, she's been looking at these new pair of shoes. And so you bring her these new pair of shoes and she feels content. She's thinking, this is nice. My husband loves me. I get a new pair of shoes. This is a win-win situation. Well, it's one thing. uh, It is the thing that you bring that is really the thing that quiets the soul. It's that external circumstances. But that's not Christian contentment. Christian contentment in the right way is the quiet that comes from a disposition of the heart, not from anything, any external circumstances or any possession in the world. It's something that comes from within us. To be content because of some external thing is really like if you go to a fire, let's say you're outside and you're have, you have a, a fire pit, you're roasting marshmallows or whatever, and, uh, and you want to warm your clothes, you might get close to the fire. And as you get close to that fire, your clothes do get warm. But the problem with that is, is as the fire goes out, or as you move away from the fire, what happens? Your clothes get cold again. You know, because it's sort of based upon these external circumstances. And, but yet, if you, if you just let your body heat warm your clothes, they stay warm forever because that warmth comes from within. And it's a lot of the same way with Christian contentment. You know, if we look for our contentment in the things that are outside of us, as we look at things, you know, as we sort of think about the ache of our soul, that's what I call it, we live in a fallen world. There's times when we feel a sense of, of, of restlessness of our heart. And we, we just, we ache in our heart and we just think, I feel anxious about something. And so for some people to sort of deal with that, they have to be busy with stuff. So they come up with some project to do, some external thing to sort of satisfy them. For others, they think, I need to go shopping. And maybe it's for shoes, I don't know. But they go shopping or something like that. Or for others, you know, they get on the computer and they just lose themselves on Facebook or whatever it is until sort of that sense of discontentment goes away. But that's not Christian Contentment. Contentment is that sweet inward matter of the heart. And many people appear to be calm on the outside, but inwardly they're frantic and, and even some people emotional basket cases. And I think for some, even that anxiousness comes out into the external of their life. But true contentment is an inward peace and calmness of the soul that no matter what kinds of terrible trials or sufferings comes, no matter what happens, There is that sense of peace. Now, I want you to notice something here. As you look at chapter uh, 4, verse 11 of Philippians, Paul says 
Not that I am speaking of being in need. And then notice what he says next. For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Contentment is not something that automatically happens in our hearts. Actually, Paul had to learn to be content. Contentment is not natural to the Christian experience. You don't just trust in Jesus Christ and now you're content with all of life. Now, I I will say this, that I have seen many people who were unbelievers and they come to faith in Christ and there is more of a sense of contentment of their soul. Yes, granted, I'll give you that. But oftentimes it's just a partial contentment. But there's not a full sense of just resting and trusting in him. And so, you know, I think especially in the world in which we live, you know, we are encouraged in our society to be discontent. Right. I mean, are we not as our culture not um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a consumeristic culture. Well, consumerism only works if one thing is true. And that is discontentment in the populace. Because if there's not a sense of discontentment, people won't continue to consume. They won't continue to buy. They won't continue to go out and get the next best thing. There's a story, it's sort of funny, but a story of a man who decided, he looked at his, uh, his, his neighbor's house and he thought, you know, he has a much nicer house than I have. And so he said, you know, I'm going to put my house in the market and I'm going to buy a nicer house. So he did. He put his house in the market and he started looking through the the ads after that, you know, several uh, days after that. And he found this house that looked perfect. And so he called his realtor and he said, hey, I just found this house. It looks perfect. I mean, the description is awesome. And I think I want you to look in that house and see if you could give me an appointment to go look at that house. And his realtor said, "Uh, uh, sir, that's your house that you have on the market that you're trying to sell. You see, it was, it was a perfect fit for him, but there was such a spirit of discontentment in him that, that he just had to have something better, had to have something bigger to keep up with his neighbors. And, and oftentimes I think that we are driven by that. And it may not be just materialism. You know, I, the example I'm giving you, and I think the culture that we live in does foster that sense of wanting things. You know, you have a cell phone, but Black Friday's coming up, and you got to get the next level. You got to get the next iPhone that just came out because, you know, it, the screen's bigger or it has this other option or, or whatever we have to have. But it's not always consumerism. Sometimes it's a, a sense of wanting a better reputation or you're, you're wanting to, to try to, uh, you know, look different in people's eyes. You know, whatever it might be, there's just many ways in which we can be discontent. But Paul says... That in all circumstances, he or all situations, or whatever the situation, he has learned to be content. In verse 12, he said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul is always content no matter what the circumstances because that contentment comes from inside of him it's not from the things that happen so as his world changes as the circumstances as each day is different it doesn't touch his soul because that contentment comes from within i like proverbs uh, 30 verses 8 and 9 you got to turn here this is this is an amazing uh, amazing proverb that i you never hear anybody preach on 
you know, but it, it just fits in this whole. It's just sort of the attitude that we need to have when it comes to being content, you know, because I think sometimes if we have too much, we can we can be discontent because we want more. Or if we have too little, we can be dis, discontented. But Proverbs is just a wonderful prayer of the attitude that we ought to have. He says in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, he goes, Remove far from me a falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, it's just that perfect balance of, of neither poverty nor riches but just that sense of contentment. But where does that contentment come from? Well, look at verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, this is just one of those verses that is abused terribly in Scripture. You know, this is the kind of abuse that someone such as myself would say, well, I know I'm 55 years old and I know that I've, I don't run at all in my life and I don't exercise that much, but I could go out tomorrow and I could run a marathon because in Jesus Christ, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or, you know, this week I can make a million dollars if I just set my mind to it because in Jesus Christ, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Have you not heard it applied that way? All the time. But that's not the context in which this verse is given. You know, actually, this is given in that that context of being content in Christ. And, and I think the thing that we need to understand as we see this verse in light of our Christian life is that God will never call you to do something that you can do. Did you hear what I said? God will never call you to do something that you can do. He will only call you to do that which you can't do unless you have him. He only calls us to do those things that we can do if we have him. And if you think back through the great men of Scripture, think back about Moses or Joshua, you know, or, or all these things. Moses couldn't have led these people out of Egypt. You know, the only way that he could get these people out of Egypt, if God did these mighty works that changed Pharaoh's heart. Or whether it be Joshua, he could never have taken down the walls of Jericho lest the Lord knock down those walls. And in the same way, we can never do the things that God calls us to do and commands us to do except that we turn to him. And so he says, I can do nothing in and of myself, but I can only do those things through which Christ gives me strength. But look back at verse 7 and 9 as we think about the whole thing of contentment. Look at verse seven. He said, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As God's peace dwells within us, it does guard our hearts and our minds from the circumstances that we encounter that's seeking to toss us to and fro. But as Jeremiah Burroughs uh, points out, he said, the peace of God is not enough to a gracious heart, except it may have the God of peace. In other words, what he's saying is, is that the Christian is not satisfied with the peace of God without having the God of peace. Are you with me? Look at verse nine. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
And that's what we need. That's what we need. We need God himself. What we need to have inner contentment that is untouchable by circumstances is to delight in God himself. And it's the attitude that we see in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the psalmist prayer to God. Can that be your prayer today? That there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, O God. But that is the attitude of one who is contentment, who is content. Also in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, Habakkuk, Uh, hears that the Lord is going to send his great judgment upon his people. And this is what he prays. And it's very telling. He said, he said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's that's his prayer. That's his response when he hears of the great judgment that God's going to send. He just cannot believe how terrible this judgment's going to be upon God's people. And then he goes on, though, and he says this. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And he said, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, And the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So he says, in essence, even if I do not receive all the blessings of God, At least I have God himself, and that is enough for me. And that is the the secret to contentment, to know God, to to walk in fellowship with him, to to, uh, enjoy that time with him. That's one thing. But there also is another sense in which there must be a detachment from the world. There must be that sense of self-denial. Uh, If I might quote again, Jeremiah Burroughs, he said, if you are to be content, you cannot grasp too much of the world. If we're going to have that sense of contentment, we can't be grasping a hold of the world and wanting to hold on to that with our hands. We need to let go of that. He goes, do not take in more business of the world than God calls you to. We must live in this world. We can't live apart from this world, but we don't have to set our affections. We don't have to set our hearts upon that. In those times when we're just quiet, which isn't very often, we try to stay busy. But sometimes I think when we're quiet, we feel the ache of our soul. And I think that it's very easy for us to turn to the things of the world. Maybe if I just turn on Netflix or Hulu or whatever and watch a show, that'll preoccupy me. You know, but but. But God's word says here that we are to turn to the Lord, that we are not to give ourselves too much to the things of this world. As a matter of fact, we need to to uh, learn the sense of of self-denial, of not giving ourselves the things that, that we want. A content heart says that God's ways are my ways. You know, such a heart denies his own way of doing things and his own goals. You know, that we seek to do the Lord's things. If you have contentment, 
when God's ways line up with your ways, then you're only going to have contentment part of the time. But a self-denying man or person denies his own will and only looks to the will of God, and so he will be content in all circumstances. When our will lines up with the Lord's, when we walk with him and we know him and we have you know, set our affections upon him and we said, God, we want to do what you want to do. We want to walk as you want to walk. Then there will be that sense of contentment. But if we only set our affections and our hearts upon the Lord some of the time, then our contentment will come and go depending upon how firmly fixed our life is founded in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and I, w- I want to say something uh, to those that are here today that are single. I think you have a unique opportunity to have a sense of freedom from the world. I know I made a, the comment the other night at Table Talk about singles, and I was afraid maybe I might have offended some, like they were thinking I was putting them in a special category because they were single, or that I looked at them as a pastor differently because they were single. But not, not really, other than what Scripture says. And Paul does talk about those who are single who, who don't have the, as many cares of the world. They don't have to worry about providing for a family. There's a certain amount of freedom that you have in those years of singleness that you don't have when you're married and when you have a family. It's lots of times you have more money, you have more freedom, more mobility. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, there's a sense in which you can give yourself more to the things of the world. Now, I know that there are those that are here today and I've had conversations with you and I know your heart's desire is to be married and praise God. And I want you to know I'm praying for you and I'm praying for the the fact that the Lord would bring that person into your life. But I don't want you to miss the opportunity that God may be giving you at this time, at this season in your life to do things that maybe you wouldn't have if God has had brought that person into your life quite yet. I think about the illustration of the pilot who, whenever he would fly across this one section of the country, he would look down into this valley with sort of a longing eyes. And after making numerous trips over this part of the country, his co-pilot finally looked at him and said, why is it every time we fly over this area with this river and these trees that you just look with such longing? And he goes, well, actually, he said, the reason is, is because when I was a little boy, he said, I used to sit on a log in the middle of that river down there and I would fish. And you go, you know what I used to do? While I was fishing, I would look up as a little boy and I would see the airplanes flying over and I would think, wow, I would like to be a pilot. I'd like to pilot one of those airplanes. And he goes, but you know what? Now that I'm a pilot, I look down, I wish I were that little boy again on that log and just enjoying those times of quietness. And I think it could be the same way. You know, God can change your circumstance just like that. If he can speak and the world can come into creation, he could take your life and the desires of your heart and he could give you exactly what you want. But the reason that he has not done that is that there is some other purpose. And we have to be careful not to. And I think singleness is one of those times. And I have to say this just so you know, I didn't get married until later in life. I was like 25 before uh, the Lord blessed me with with my wife. 
And I know what it's like to sometimes always be looking at the other side, and I just don't want you to miss what you may have. But that's not true just for those that are single. That could be true for all of us. There could be things in our lives, you know, things that we have set our hearts and our lives upon that are actually becoming a distraction for us. And God wants us to know that he has us right where he has us and he has us there for a reason. And he encourages us to give ourselves to learning to be content. I'm not asking you to walk away from here and to be content as soon as you walk out this door. You know, uh, it will take years maybe for us to walk, to work through the, the deep truths that Paul shares here from Philippians 4, for these things to get down into our bones, if in essence, to become sort of our default setting like the computer. You know, it's going to take probably many years for the work of the Spirit of God to train our hearts to give in to that secret of contentment. And of course, the battle is getting into the heart so that it dominates our circumstances so that it's like Mount Everest sort of towering over these molehills of our circumstances, however they might be. Because you see that secret of contentment is a deep personal and doctrinal experiential embrace of God and his providence. And he wants you to know this day and he is calling us to walk in that sense of contentment, to rest in that, not to get caught up in the circumstances of our lives. And it's as we have that sense of contentment that we truly will be free to be able to give thanks to him, to give praise to him. Now, I know that Thanksgiving is a secular holiday. It was instituted by Congress. And if you go overseas, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. But I'll tell you what, as Christians, Ought that not to be our heart's attitude every day of the year? The salvation that we've received, the greatness of our God is so awesome. Should we not have this opportunity to give praise and worship to him? So let not the things of this world, let not the discontentment of, of our hearts and of that of our culture around us that is pressuring us to be in those circumstances to rob us of the joy that we have in Jesus Christ to give praise and thanksgiving to our God. Let's pray. Lord, you know the the fickleness of our our hearts. And how easily we are distracted from the good things, the best thing that you have given us, and that is yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would draw our hearts ever closer to you. Please, this week, Lord, as we are tempted to set our hearts and our affections upon other things, Lord, when we are, we seek to mask the ache of our souls with the things of this world, I pray that your spirit would prick our conscience to know that you have provided a greater, a better way. That truly our contentment only comes in who we are in Jesus Christ. And may we turn to you, Lord. And I know that maybe the times that we have spent with you, maybe those muscles, those spiritual muscles of, of just being quiet before you are 
are weak, but we pray that you would strengthen them, that you would teach us, O oh Lord, that you would help us to learn what it means to be content, to find our full satisfaction and our delight in you. Lord, please, may we let go of the things of this world. May we make conscious efforts this week to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you. We thank you that you have set us free, Lord, to live a life that is happy, a life that is content, a life that is joyful, a life that is honoring to you. Praise be to your name. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.